Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome into the Mining Stock Daily Friday morning long-form episode here for the week. I am your host, Trevor Hall. Thank you for tuning in, not only to this episode, but throughout the week for all those corporate updates, market commentaries, and also the morning briefings. We had a lot of news that kind of trickled in throughout the week and a lot of updates. And you know what? My schedule is already getting full for next week. So lots of news coming down the pipeline from the mining sector. We've got two wonderful segments for you. First, we welcome in the highly successful Warren Gilman of Queens Road Capital to discuss the big macro picture of the global economy and how it is affecting the mining industry from the big boys to the junior explorers. Big conversation both Paul and I have with Warren, and it's one you're going to want to listen to in its entirety. We then turn over to my friend David Cole, the CEO of EMX Royalty, to discuss the company's Q1 and also projection for the rest of the year. And we also get into a long conversation regarding the competitive royalty space in the mining sector as well. Special thank you to Arizona Sonoran Copper, Western Copper and Gold, Integra Resources, and Rio2 for your continued support of the podcast. Please leave us a review of the podcast on that network you use to get your rundown from Mining Stock Daily. It does, it does a tremendous amount of good for us to get in front of new people. Let's bust into my conversation with Mr. Gilman. Have yourself a great weekend, everybody. Be well. You are in our first segment of our long-form episode here this Friday, uh, the last Friday of April. Trevor Hall here, and happy to welcome in both our co-hosts, Paul Harris, and a new guest from Queens Road Capital, Mr. Warren Gilman. Queens Road Capital does trade on the Venture Exchange, I believe, TSX Venture with QRC. We're going to talk a little bit more about Queens Road here with Mr. Gilman. Uh, Warren, welcome to the Octagon. We usually don't... (laughs) typically have uh two hosts interviewing one person but this was a really important conversation because we're going to have a broader uh, range of topics for you when uh, regarding the exploration and mining sector so first of all uh thank you for sticking your neck out here and doing this for us no my pleasure trevor it's a beautiful spring day here in vancouver and uh Hey, looking forward to the chat with you and Paul. All right. Yeah, it's a beautiful spring day here in the front range of Colorado as well. I'm sure it's uh, raining and sweltering in Columbia where Paul is. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll take whatever we can get, right, Paul? Absolutely, yeah. It's all good. <laughs> uh, uh, Warren, let's, uh, let's just start out with pleasantries and talk about really your career and experience and what Queens Road Capital is and its involvement in the exploration and mining sector. Well, I'm a mining engineer originally, Trevor, uh, and in one of the inevitable downturns in mining that we see every 10 years without fail, uh, I got laid off by Cominco and had to get a real job. So I became a banker and uh, then became an investor, uh, worked for 10 years running a business with Li Ka-shing out of Hong Kong, investing in the mining business globally. and then decided to set up my own company, which is QRC, which as you mentioned, is Toronto listed. And we are an investor in mining projects around the world, uh, commodity agnostic, uh, and a focus on 
income-generating securities like convertible debentures, protect the downside, get a coupon every month, and have unlimited upside. That's our, uh, that's our mantra. Uh, and uh, we've been going for two years, stocks up, doing well, and uh, going to continue to grow the company. So you're a publicly listed company. Talk about the decision to go public rather than being like the typical <laughs> private equity. Uh, Trevor, that, that's a great question. And it's sort of a, uh, an entity that took on a life of its own. We were private. Uh, and, and people might know my email address as QRCC, which Q, uh, Queens Road Central Capital, which was the private company originally. I haven't changed it. So you still reach me at qrcc.com.hk for Hong Kong. Uh, I took control of a shell, a TSX venture company listed shell a couple of years ago thinking, well, you know, the opportunity arose and I might need this shell at some point to put some asset that our private company had uh, into the shell and uh, go from there. Well, once I took control of the shell, the market took off. Uh, my, uh, my investors on a private basis said, well, we'd happily put some money into that shell and continue to grow the business in a public format. So it was sort of uh, a response to demand rather than something that I came up with. The, the investors decided this should be a public vehicle. And so now it is. And 90% of what we do is in the, uh, in the public company now. Uh, it would have been a lot simpler, a lot easier uh, if we kept it private. But you do what your shareholders demand. So I just respond to my shareholders. They wanted a public entity with some liquidity and an ability to raise outside capital. So here we are. Uh, the you've got you said you're metals agnostic here, and it shows within your portfolio of investments on the website. You can find that at queensrdcapital.com. Uh, interesting. You've got two of the more well-known exploration development plays in the uranium space that would be next gen and iso energy uh you also are involved uh, heavily in the adriatic metals play in eastern europe and then also los andes copper and osisco um the cisco green investment which is interesting which is a spec so you you kind of paint a, with a broad brush here uh very interesting i want to get your general sense here of the challenges investing in, in the commodity space that we've seen recently there has been quite a headwind now if you looked at the metals prices you would think well metals equities should be going through the roof but uh nothing could be more uh it could be further from the truth unless maybe you were a gold producer like newmont that recently made all-time highs can you talk about this dispersion between the metals prices and the and the equities right now yeah and, and trevor this is a, a really important question because uh, the battle of commodity prices versus equity prices is playing out as we speak. Uh, and whoever wins this battle is going to uh, point to the direction of uh, valuations for the coming several months, I think. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. And of course, what you have happening is uh, once again, in the middle of a bull market, you have investor disappointment with the actual profits generated by the mining industry. 
You've got an industry where, as you say, everything is working in our favor. Uh, global growth, we're emerging from COVID. Metal, you know, demand for metals of all sorts is increasing. Uh, and so it's boom time for metal prices. Just at the same time, you've got rising interest rates, you've got rising input costs for a whole variety of reasons, and so you've got an inflationary background to this economic boom that we're currently seeing. So as a result, it costs more to produce less, and margins are getting squeezed more than people were expecting. Uh, Paul's got his hand up. Let me just finish this point, Paul. Uh, we saw this back in 2012, 2013. We saw it again in 2015, 2016. What do you have to do to make outsized profits in this industry if inevitably every time commodity prices go up, the cost to produce an ounce of gold or a pound of copper goes up equally or even more, margins get squeezed, and so as a result, you don't make that much money in the industry. And we've seen this time and time and time again. Uh, investors get disappointed in the middle of a boom cycle, and we're living through it as we speak. Paul? Yeah, um, I, th I think that's a really interesting um, comment um, because, you know, for miners, obviously they can't control cost inflation or, or there's only limited things that they can do. But it seems to be that's potentially um, the curse of having a, a price that you have no control over. And uh, the reason I put my hand up is uh, earlier this week, I was reading an article in the UK Guardian and it, um, the, the reporter there did a, a, was looking at the, the quarterly results of US companies, uh, nicely traded companies, um, you know, generalist companies, nothing to do with mining. And um, despite the inflationary environment, pretty much everybody's profit margins and profits are increasing. And that includes companies that produce food, uh, where there's supposed to be great price inflation, uh, retail, and pretty much every other sector. The, the, the companies are able to push through whatever price rises they're experiencing themselves in their in, in their inputs, but also perhaps uh, bumping up margins that they haven't been able to do in recent years. They're, they're, they're able to do so. Obviously, metals producers cannot do that. They have to, their only yeah. way of increasing margin is reducing costs. Exactly right. We live in a global, global environment for the most part, metal prices, the, the prices at which we sell things that we produce are set on a global basis. We are a price taker. And we have to live with that and hope that prices for our goods increase, uh, for our products increase faster than the input costs. Right now, uh, it's a bit of a battle. It's interesting that this all started off, this perception of decreasing margins in the mining sector, uh, all started just two weeks ago with, of all things, uh, the earnings result for Alcoa. Uh, not as many mining development investors follow Alcoa because it's just this big behemoth that, that produces aluminum and, and there's no mine development play there. Uh, but Alcoa kicked it off. Everyone saw the inflation and input costs, particularly energy for Alcoa, obviously. And that set off a domino impact of concerns for all the big miners. They all sold off in the Alcoa results. 
And as a result, development companies have then fallen suit, and now exploration companies are falling suit. The dominoes continue to fall simply because of a quarterly report from Alcoa. Uh, that report uh, wasn't an outlier. That was something that is reflecting higher inflation and higher input costs across the sector. So it was a very good signal. But it'll be interesting to see who wins out in the next few weeks. Do we get a rebound or do people stay, uh, shall we say, concerned uh, about the profitability of the sector, even in this boom time? And I do want to get your sense on the profitability versus, I guess you can say, the morality of this sector here, Warren. Uh, listen, the world needs more materials to continue to progress as a society. Uh, and I was kind of, I was having a beer with a colleague a couple of weeks ago, and, and this question was posed. You know, in, in business, obviously, the more margin, the more profitable you can be, the better off your business is going to be. But when it comes to societal standards, the mining industry creates things and materials the world absolutely needs for progression. Now, I guess the moral the, the moral dilemma we have is do we just stop producing because we aren't making the prof the profitability that we would like as a business or do we have a moral imperative to continue to produce regardless? Not many people are going to like that question, but I think it's a good <laughs> question. And, and Paul, you were going to add to that. Well, yeah, I was just going to jump in because, um, you know, in, in recent, well, so far this year, we've seen zinc producers um, curtail production. I mean, that's largely related to the cost of power in Europe. But, um, you know, some producers have been prepared to take production offline of things that are, you know, very, very important to to our, our standard of living. Yeah. And, 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 and Trevor, uh, investors might, not quite see that moral imperative on the horizon, but I agree with you, it is on the horizon. And one classic example of that is in the uranium space. And when you see uh, most of the majority of nuclear fuel that is purchased in the US currently comes from Russia. And the feedstock for that fuel is yellow cake that is produced in either Russia, Kazakhstan, or Uzbekistan. When the Biden administration started talking about putting sanctions on the purchase of energy from Russia after the invasion of Ukraine, the industry association that represents utilities in the U.S. These are people who buy that fuel for the reactor fleet in the U.S. And the U.S. to this day is still the largest nuclear fleet, nuclear power fleet in the world and the largest single consumer of uranium. That industry association immediately began to lobby the Biden administration for an exemption to allow them to continue to purchase uranium fuel from Russia, despite all the morality issues around that, uh, and, and despite the bad publicity of having a 
industry association lobby the industry in order to be able to buy Russian material. I think that position lasted for about a day before the morality issue backlash in the U.S. This was such an un-American thing to do in the middle of a war that the association started to backtrack and then said, we hear you and perhaps even without sanctions, without the legal obligation to stop purchases, we are simply going to decide to stop purchases. And that has the follow-on impact of making Canadian, Australian, and U.S. uranium mine developers more valuable. And it was all because of the moral issue, Trevor, that you brought up. And so that is just one example where we will see an impact of a moral decision on mining development. Well, uh, I think that's a very interesting point. I was going to come in with something else, but I'll put that off to later on because um, expanding that sort of concept of the moral issue and, and commodities that are very essential to um, daily life and, and things of that nature. Um, let, let's talk about copper. Let's bring copper into that because um, the US has been a big producer of copper over, over, over time, over history. It's got a lot of deposits, but despite... You know, U.S. President Biden getting behind the development of uh, strategic minerals or critical minerals. Copper is noticeably absent from the USGS's list of, I think it's 53 now, and one could argue that copper is the most critical or strategic or essential of all because nothing else works if there's not a copper wire running into it somewhere. No, absolutely right. Uh, the U.S. has to look long and hard at security of production the best security one can have is production on your own soil. But we've seen it time and time and time again in the U.S. And this is nothing new. The U.S. has been aware of this issue and has chosen year after year, decade after decade, to, try to take the cheapest source of material rather than support a critical industry. And we all live through the rare earth boom of 2009 and 2010 where, you know, for this, just the same argument, Paul, rare earths are needed in everything the U.S. does, including being critical for the defense industry. And they chose to buy 100% of their rare earths product from China. They chose to buy virtually all of their uranium from Russia. And now they're choosing to source most of their critical materials, including copper, from other countries. You would think that at some point that thought process will change and they will decide that having domestic sources of these critical elements is important. But if past practice is any indication, they haven't done so in the past. So it would be a significant change in attitude, especially in the U.S., well, as the American here, I'll reiterate that unfortunately U.S. politics is all about, not necessarily about doing what is necessary and right, it's about getting those votes from the fringes because that's how you win elections. Absolutely, absolutely right, Trevor. And it's great to say conceptually domestic supply, uh, but then you get the NIMBY result, which is, okay, absolutely, we want a copper mine. I just don't want a copper mine in my backyard. And it has to be in someone's backyard 
So that attitude has to change, and it's got to be a strong-willed government that makes it happen. And as you say, Trevor, it's hard to find a strong-willed government, uh, especially in the U.S. these days where everything is bipartisan. Right. I, I want to go back to this uh, m- uh, moral dilemma that we've kind of been talking about. And actually, how does this pertain to investors? Uh, Warren, we get a lot of younger people that listen to this podcast, uh, you know, between, you know, between ages 30 and 40, which is great, you know, and, and I'd say, say it's safe to say a lot of retail investors. Now we're having this discussion and they're probably just shaking their head like, what the hell am I doing in this space? What's the, <laughs> what, what's the point? Um, you know, so where is that sweet spot right now that you see f- for being, you know, somebody who works, a eight to five who wants to put money into the resource and mining sector, but knows that maybe there's so many headwinds against them. Is there a sweet spot within the life life cycle of mine development that you think is still, uh, you know, still has a a great place to put some money, not to mention the risk, obviously it's going to be very risky, but you know, where's that kind of sweet spot here? Yeah, uh, uh, Trevor, that's a great question. It's a great question for your listeners. And I'll tell you what the sweet spot is. And it's a, it's the spot that Queens Road and myself, this is what I do. This is the area that I focus in. You don't want to go too early stage. You don't want to go too early, you know, very, very young, small exploration companies, because that's just like going to Vegas and rolling the dice. I mean, you could get lucky, but chances are, 50 out of 51 times, you're not going to be lucky. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're a a younger investor uh, who doesn't have great experience in assessing projects, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be in the mature companies either because it's not a lot of fun. Uh, You know, it's influenced, their stock prices are influenced more by uh, macro factors, where the market overall is going, where interest rates are going. The sweet spot is in companies that have had an initial exploration success and they're just drilling to expand on something they've already found. And yes, you might have missed the first five-fold move in the stock, but you'll be there for the next tenfold and your money will be safer because the company has already found something. They already have something. So you know the stock isn't going to go to zero but it could increase 10 times from where it is now if that discovery gets bigger and bigger. That's, in my view, the sweet spot. And it's not, uh, it, it, it's not uh, restricted to any particular metal. It's all metals. It could be a gold play. It could be a silver play. It could be a copper play. It could be a uranium play. You could use that model to invest in every one of those sectors and do tremendously well. And once again, if you don't feel particularly adept or if you feel uncomfortable as an individual selecting those individual companies, then my commercial here is obviously by Queen's Road, we'll make those selections for you. We've done a pretty darn good job over the last two years at Queen's Road and 15 years at CEF working for Li Ka-shing in Hong Kong. Those are the companies that we pick, rely on my judgment, and will do well. And and those sweet spots that you just mentioned there, Warren, tend to 
I think in, in, in general terms, be a, a good investment moment opportunity because after a company's had that initial success, its stock prices increase and they often sort of go to the market to raise a, a bigger chunk of money to continue that work. And so the stock often has, um, you, you could potentially get access to a private placement, which is great, but the stock also potentially has a, a little bit of a pullback because of the discount um, a private placement brings with it. So it's often a, a good moment of time to invest in the open market anyway. That's right. And once they do that capital raising after they've discovered something, they usually start. That is the entry point, Paul, for institutional investors. Those are guys who weren't there before. Those are guys who followed the stock and said, ah, they've found something, they're raising some money, and I can now get in. And once you get the institutional investors there, they tend to follow on from that private placement by purchasing in the market. And it becomes, in some respects, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, uh, 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 you know, just reiterates, reemphasizes the point that I think that's the sweet spot for, for individual investors. Warren, if, if profitability and good margins in the mining industry wasn't hard enough, Let's welcome in Mr. Inflation here. Yeah. Um, and I, I will reiterate to a lot of people who listen to the podcast will know that what I'm going to say about inflation cycles, the last inflation cycle really started in the 60s and it was at its height in 79 and 80. So you're talking more than a 10-year inflationary cycle. In this cycle, we are, we're talking like we're in the first eight months. Right. So if we if we're using that comparison, there there's going to continue to be pressures on anybody creating projects, whether in the mining sector or you know other resource sectors, you know oil and gas. Anybody who's creating a capital project is going to be very challenged here. Um, talk about from your and really, if you could put on your mine engineering hat once again, and. Are you entering this stage just expecting your line items to continue to increase? How would you be watching those continued price pressures? Uh, you know, you obviously aren't, I would assume you're not listening to the politicians that continue to say, well, things are going to stabilize the second half of the year because that's always going to happen. But, you know, <laughs> like what, how, how, do, how are you positioning yourself as a mine engineer in this? Yeah, uh, uh, Trevor, as a mine engineer, it is a difficult time because, uh, and you've seen this time and time again, even in normal uh, environments, normal times, people tend to underestimate the cost of doing something, especially building a mine. You know, what is it? One out of every 10 mines actually comes in under budget, nine times out of 10, out of 10. Uh, CapEx on a new mine build comes up over budget, sometimes tremendously over budget. Right now, you've got the added problem of input costs escalating at a tremendous rate. Uh, so it just exacerbates that problem. And you really wouldn't, as a mining engineer or as a company, you wouldn't want to be in a position today where you were starting a mine build because you know the costs are going to be much higher than you thought they were going to be. And you're seeing this every day. It's in the valuations of companies that are bringing mines into production. And it reminds you me again of the period 2015, 2016, where 
if you had a mine that you needed to build, that used to be viewed as a great asset, that used to be viewed as a great thing, that used to be viewed as a reason to buy the company's stock. In the last two weeks, we've reverted back to this mentality that, oh my God, they have a mine. Oh my God, that means they have to build it. Oh my God, that means lots of CapEx creep and lots of bad news for the next two to three years. Oh my God, I shouldn't own this stock. It's bad news. And it's very interesting to see how owning a mine can go from a great thing to a bad thing in investors' eyes. And that's where we currently are. Paul? Yeah, just the, the past week or so, we've seen a, a few big mining companies talk about um, how much their development projects are increasing in costs um, by some significant numbers. Um, the most recent one, I think, was Newmont um, bumping up the, the CapEx price or, or figure on its Yanacocha sulfides project in Peru from 2.25 billion to, to 2.5 billion. And um, they say they're still going to push ahead and make a financing decision mid-year. Um, when it seems that what you're saying, Warren, is it's perhaps better to sit on your hands at the when you're in this inflationary environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. In terms of IRR, in terms of actual dollars in shareholders' pockets, they would be better off to simply let this inflationary period go by, let input costs settle down. You know, you don't try to buy steel when the world globally is bidding up the price of steel by 30 to 40% every three months. You stand back and say, you know what, I'm going to let this calm down. I'll build this mine next year or the year after that. And in the long run, shareholders will be better off if they defer the construction decisions. Can I, I want to bring in something here um, related to ESG and potentially how ESG can tie, potentially tie mining companies into knots. Because, you know, going back, touching back on the moral imperative uh, broad argument, yeah. you know, a company's been talking with government for a number of years saying we want to build this mine. Want to generate lots of revenue for you. Revenue for you. We want to help develop the region and create jobs and all the rest of it. And then when it comes to the moment, you know, ah, the prices aren't there or inflation's too high, so we want to delay. We want to defer. We want to push into the unforeseeable future. Um, does ESG sort of start creating a moral imperative to have to develop a mine? Yeah. And and Paul. Uh, Again, this is where morality is being seen more and more in the industry. Uh, there's the legal right to exploit a mineral deposit, and then there's the social right. Uh, a good friend of mine in the in the U.S. said, uh, put it quite well, I thought, when he said, "There's the." Uh, permitting stage in the U.S. where you go through the legal process. And then there's the post-permitting stage, which is perhaps even more onerous, which is uh, all the legal challenges and all the discussions right at the grassroots level to have the moral and the social license to actually put your legal right into play and build and operate a mine. And without doubt, you need both. And that is a global phenomenon. It's not just in the U.S. It's in 
clearly it's in Australia, it's in Ecuador, it's in Bosnia, it, it, it's everywhere. And that all comes down to the moral question, which is, do you have the support of the people? Do they understand that we need these products? Exploitation of the deposits creates jobs and creates better quality of life for the people in the environment. And it is doing the world a service by producing these elements. And if you get people looking at it with that perspective, you'll have a mind. If people have other priorities, then you won't. And society, society going forward will make these determinations. Well, I want, what I was wanting to sort of get at there is if, if you do manage to get that, and then for whatever reason, the metals prices dip or inflation goes up a notch, um, do you have the moral obligation to, you know, you've got government side, you've got the legal permission, you've got the permission of the society and the community to, to go ahead with your project, your plan. And then, you, you know, you, you waver because the, the, the metal price has dipped. I mean, do you have the moral obligation to, to advance and actually build the mine? I, I think your moral obligation is to your shareholders, the people whose money you are stewarding. Uh, you do not have the right as the management of a public company that lives on other people's money. You don't have the right to deploy their capital in something that won't give them a decent return. If you think you have that right, you should not be the management or the CEO of a public company. You have only the right to give them a proper return on their capital. If some governing body, like a government, decides, all right, it is a moral imperative that we produce these materials, you're not getting a proper return, therefore we're going to give you some sort of assistance and boost the return. If those decisions are made, fine. But we don't usually see that in the mining industry historically. But I would argue that if the government wants to get into the mining business, you know, by all means, go right ahead. But don't expect public companies that use the hard-earned after-tax capital of working people as their source of funds don't use that source of funds in an uneconomic way that's well well put there warren i, I do want to go back in a little bit of a macro conversation here because one of the things i've been really racking my head on is future financings for exploration and mine development and i know we've talked a lot about inflationary pressures what we haven't talked about yet is kind of the impacts of a rising rate environment and what it means for financing projects uh, moving forward. Uh, you know, when money is cheap, obviously people are willing to go finance anything that's on the riskier part of the curve. And we've actually saw that. I think the height, maybe you could argue, was the fall of 2020 that really got a lot of new projects up and off the ground, new issue, new issuances, IPOs, new companies. So that was, that was good to see. But here we are with a a tightening cycle. Uh, who knows where we'll end up at the where yield where the yields bond yields will end up here when it's all said and done with. But the matter of the fact is, money is going to be a little bit more expensive uh, moving forward because it needs to be. 
Uh, that's where yeah. we are in the cycle. But what does this mean for financing exploration projects? What does it mean for those junior explorers that depend on going back to equity markets to raise money to continue to move projects forward? Do you have concern here? Where's this money going to come from uh, for this for this industry? Yeah, what you've talked about, Trevor, is an increase in the cost of capital. Uh, yes, if if you are a uh, big integrated company or a, a, a diversified big miner, yes, your cost of debt is going to increase marginally, but all these companies are in great shape. Uh, and the impact on their uh, uh income statement is not going to be that great. Where they're going to see it is obviously the escalation. The increase in real rates will lead to inflation and it's the, uh, it, it's the operating cost where they're going to see that. Your point is about exploration companies and developers and this business is driven by equity. Uh, it is not a debt-driven business. It relies on access to stock exchange money, the capital markets in general, and it's virtually all equity. And as interest rates rise, the cost of all capital rises, so the cost of equity will increase. Even though intuitively they're not directly linked, cost of all capital rises just as interest rates rise. And so that means that that reflection of an increased cost of capital is manifested by lower valuations. You're going to get lower share prices in a rising interest rate environment. And we've certainly seen that in the last three, four months across Canadian equities, Australian equities, uh, UK listed mining equities. As interest rates rise, stock prices peri parsu uh, start to come off. So until we see a light at the end of that interest rate tunnel, uh, valuations will be under pressure. It will cost exploration companies more money. They'll have to issue more shares to get the same amount of work done. So what does a, a junior exploration CEO do in this environment? The cost of capital, to some extent, is out of their control, just like the cost of inputs if you're building a mine are out of your control. Uh, you can, just as, as if you were a mine builder, you can hit the pause button and say, you know what, uh, if I want an extra drilling rig on my property today, I'm going to have to really pay up for it. Do you really need that extra drill rig, or can you just get by with what you've got, tell the story, Continue to develop as much as you can, but do it in a very efficient manner. But be cautious with other people's money. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's that's the correct way to manage an exploration company at all times. But in this environment in particular, don't be throwing money after a project just to move it ahead quicker. Be cautious with your shareholders' money. So things that I'm kind of taking away from listening to this is look at companies that are, are well capitalized right now that have money in the bank that can continue to move projects forward strategically companies that also maybe have a solid shareholder base to where even in the hard times can find ways to raise money in the future if need be. Um, it also made me think of how important 
junior exploration companies with, say, big strategic investors or JVs are so uh, are in a much better position now than those exploration companies who are not. So if you have a yeah. JV with a major, maybe gold producer or base metals producer, holy cow, that like that is going to pay dividends for you in this cycle. Yeah, those are all great advantages to have if uh, if you're an emerging exploration company or developer. Uh, but let me let me add a, a little bit of hope to this discussion because the discussion <laughs> has been about increasing capex, increasing opex, and increasing cost of capital. Headwinds, headwinds. Uh, you know the ultimate result of all of these things. Uh, and we talked about uh, uh, you know legal right to mine and moral right to mine. The the absolute longer term trend here is rising commodity prices, and there will be it'll be tougher and tougher to build a mine, tougher to get the right to build it, more expensive to build it, more expensive to operate it. That means that metal price, fewer mines will get built. Uh, fewer big mines will get built because it's the bigger mines that have huge capex increases. And so that will lead to continued tightness of supply, which will yield, eventually lead to higher commodity prices across the board. So it's simply a longer-term question of, Will those increases in commodity prices outstrip the increase in the input costs? And I'm a huge believer that that will be the case because demand is increasing. Demand is not going away. We need all of these materials and it's getting tougher and tougher and more expensive to access them. So the inevitable result is higher commodity prices across the board. And so if you make a discovery or if you have a mine that's already in production, you are going to get outsized rewards for being in that position. So I think there's tremendous amount of hope. I think there's a tremendous amount of upside. Right now, the market is having a little bit of a reassessment and a reckoning, but ultimately the long-term trend is in our favor. Warren, I appreciate your time. I know we covered a lot of different topics here, and uh, you, you you did well. We'd love to have you back. <laughs> My pleasure, Trevor Paul. Always interesting, and I love the fact that you take a broader view of these issues because uh, uh, rather than just talking about what stock's going up and what stock's going down, you guys want to get right behind it and the issues that are driving this. So a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Hey, before we let you go here, let people know where they might be able to contact you with any follow-up questions or maybe even uh, investor questions regarding Queens Road Capital. Absolutely. Uh, as, as you mentioned, Trevor, we're a Toronto-listed company. We're about to get upgraded from uh, Toronto Venture Exchange to the main board. We're a dividend-paying company. Paid our maiden dividend last year at the end of our first year of operation, and we will pay another one at the end of this year. So dividend, profitable, Toronto-listed company, Warren Gilman at qrcc.com.hk. I, can I just add a quick comment on to the end of that? Um, I, I really love the way that the company gives dividend, but uh, shareholders can also elect to take that in, in stock rather than cash. And the company 
uh, has a share repurchase program, which, uh, as it says on its uh, on its materials, says uh, allows the company to facilitate the disposal of shares by short-term shareholders and put them in the hands of long-term investors. I think that's pretty neat, and I haven't really seen any other company do that in that way. Core part of the business plan, and it was driven again, Paul, by my shareholders. At the end of last year, I contacted them and said, guys, I told you I was going to pay a dividend. I'm about to pay you a dividend. And they said, but Warren, you know, we're all billionaires. We don't need more cash. We really want more shares. And I said, yeah, but I don't want to have to do a dividend reinvestment plan for such a, you know, the small beginning of this company. And they said, no, Warren, you got to listen to us. We want more shares. <laughs> so that's the origin of that plan, Paul. The shareholders telling me what to do. Excellent. All right, that is Warren Gilman from Queens Road Capital. We're going to take a really quick break, everybody, and be back with Dave Cole, CEO of EMX Royalty. Stay with us. We're back here on the Mining Stock Daily Long Form episode with our second segment here on this episode. Uh, happy to welcome in the CEO of EMX Royalty, Mr. David Cole. EMX trades on the NYSE American with the symbol EMX, also using that same symbol on the TSX Venture. Uh, Dave, uh, you and I have known each other for quite some time. I do do some work with EMX here on the side and happy to do so. Uh, we're going to kind of break some things down here regarding the company and a lot of the news that's kind of taken place here in the last, well, I guess Q1 and into Q2. Um, you know, let's start kind of real broad here. There was Q1 kind of started out, there was some news that wasn't necessarily favorable to the company, uh, but then there was some big news in just the last couple of weeks, bringing in a, uh, well, a new strategic investor from the likes of Franco Nevada with a $10 million financing. Uh, that was really important for the company. Uh, you know, how do you kind of summarize not only the the headwinds, but also the tailwinds uh, for EMX in the, in this early part of the year. Trevor, great to be on with you again. Thank you. Always my pleasure to talk about all these things. And there were a lot of questions embedded in that, yeah. <laughs> in that statement. So, <laughs> so where do we start? Uh, you know, a lot of lot of news flow, a lot of deal flow coming out of EMX. And yes, we're delighted to have Franco Nevada as a strategic investor into um, EMX, and they. Uh, now on 3.5% of us on an issue outstanding basis, we were able to do that at a 25% premium to market. It did include a nice warrant and, and we're more than happy to have them as a, uh, a member of the team now and, and part, part, of our, part of our audience. Um, we know those guys well and have had an immense amount of respect for them. And, and we have built our business model partially out of having observed the success of Pierre Lasson and Seymour Schulich and Paul Brink in building and David Harkwell in building Franco Nevada. And they're the premier player in the mining royalty space. And so if you ask me who would be the next great strategic investor to bring into EMX, and I'll say on that note that we've done well with industry strategic investors uh, early in our history, Barrick, 
um, still currently and have participated in three private placements with us, Newmont Mining Corporation. SSR now is one of our largest shareholders. Uh, the IFC, the investing arm of the World Bank, was a shareholder for many years. All of these, these uh, uh, placeholder strategic investors um, have done very well for us in our uh, almost 20 year history now. And if you ask me who would be the best strategic investor to bring into EMX right now, I would have said Franco Nevada. So we're very, very, very pleased to have, have been able to complete a transaction with them. We were in discussions with them for some time. You might say, well, why in the world does Franco want a piece of EMX? They don't own any uh, junior or mid-tier royalty stocks. Mm -hmm. And it's because they are enamored with and are very complimentary of our royalty generation work. Uh, of course, they believe they're the best at buying royalties. We buy royalties also. But um, it's the royalty generation component of EMX, which you've heard me talk about agnosium over the years, mm. that, that really stands out. And that's our hedgehog. And that's our differentiating factor. And that's why they bought the stock. And Paul Brink has specifically told me I can say that. Um, and we are the only mid-tier junior company stock that they are invested in. We're very proud of that. And I believe and hope that this will transpire into more deals where we work synergistically, such as the one that we did with the augmentation of our Casarones royalty, which is one of the big news pieces that you mentioned. And uh, we, you know, we love the Casarones open pit copper porphyry with molybdenum credit mine in, in uh, uh, South America. And that's, a, that's an asset that's just going to continue to move forward and pump out cash. Uh, and we're, we're very pleased to have a piece of that and have a, a chance to augment it. And we brought that to Franco and said, we have a chance to increase uh, our ownership here. It's the, the total bite of the apple is bigger than we can afford. Would you like to participate? And by the way, we, you know, how about this is a good timing for taking a placement into EMX. And that's how the whole deal went down. Uh, we're delighted to have that currently cash flowing copper and molybdenum income coming into EMX. Okay. Uh, now, I know there was, there was a lot into that question that yes, I asked. There's a yes, lot yes, into yes. that answer. So let's start kind of breaking this up a little bit here, Dave. Um, you know, what's kind of interesting here is there's $10 million in from this financing from Franco Nevada, or excuse me, this investment. Um, and you mentioned that they really are, you know, enamored with your royalty generation work, which is really kind of that boots on the ground project type of um, uh, uh, project generation type of part of the business model here. But on the flip side, you you did take this and you go in and, and you you took that $10 million to the another part of your business model and went and added on to a current existing royalty. I mean, isn't that a little bit going against what the money was for or what Franco was originally wanting, you know, enjoying EMX or wanting to be a part of EMX for? Not the first time someone's pointed that out to me, Trevor, <laughs> <laughs> and it probably won't be the last. Then you're well-seasoned so, to answer it. <laughs> well, that's right. so, so here's the deal. Yes, the money that Franco invested in us went straight into a royalty purchase. Ironically, Franco is gold-focused, and that was a copper royalty. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another point that you know to bring up uh, that makes it unusual. The uh, I wonder if that is not indicative of the fact that many royalty companies are looking broader with respect to diversification of metals at this point in time. You know, much of my career, everyone was gold focused. Right now, you know, uh, uh, our industry is fascinated by the potential of multiple commodities across the periodic table. And there might be an evolution within the royalty space where some of the big gold royalty companies become more diversified over time. Hard not to want to be long copper, right? So, 
Um, yes, it was a copper investment, and and yes, it was a the purchase of a royalty. Uh, but you know, e- even though that's the case, what they have distinctly articulated to us is that the reason why they want to own our stock is because of the royalty generation. David Harkel one time told me at a conference where I met him, he said, he said we we think that this combination of royalty generation with royalty purchasing that you do is particularly powerful. Hats off to you for doing it. Oh, so what else is other than just adding money as an investment into EMX? Is there any other involvement on Franco Nevada's behalf within the company? Nope, that's it. At this point in time. At this point in time. Okay. Um, I do want to talk about this Casarones project because you you took an early stake in this last year uh, and you like it enough to add on to it. You know, what is it about this producing royalty that, you know, wanted you to basically double down on it? So this may sound a little cheeky, but it's cash erroneous. So (laughs) the, the, uh, sorry if if that's an overplayed joke. Um, it's the cash flow at the top of our pyramid. So we have done an excellent job throughout our history of building the base of our pyramid dominantly through royalty generation work. And we all know that the Achilles heel of royalty generation is a long timeline between actual prospecting, creating those royalties by selling them off and production cash flow at the end of the day, which is what the mid-tier market investors really want to see. And so, you know, th- th- this is one of the key objectives of, e- of EMX is when we buy royalties to put them at the top of the pyramid to round out our pyramid. So we have the cash flow at the top, in addition to that immense amount of optionality created through the assets in the base of the pyramid that are being advanced through the expenditure of our counterparties. And um, so, so, you know, we're, we're, we're populating the top of the pyramid. Okay. Uh I, I kind of want to change subjects here and because there's a number of news items that you and I need to catch up on. And I do want to talk about the settlement with Barrick, uh, some litigation in regards to the Bullion Monarch mining deal. This was something that uh, the news dropped back in mid-February that there was a settlement made uh, uh, for $25 million. Um, but... He, I, can you kind of walk us through this? Because the company really kept this litigation on the wraps for I don't even know how long. Uh, it was very quiet. Uh, but, you know, kind of talk about, you know, putting the bow on this and moving on. Happy to. So this was a litigation brought by Bullion Monarch prior to EMX purchasing Bullion Monarch. Okay. Against Newmont and against Barrick for unpaid royalties on the Carlin trend relating to a 1979 royalty agreement with an area of interest clause. And all the notes surrounding this 14 year lawsuit are public information. And all of that can be researched and found by people that are interested in this case. It's a fascinating case, extraordinarily complicated, many, many mergers and acquisitions that have occurred over time, which only make it more difficult. and we're happy to have it completed. I will say that when EMX bought Bullion Monarch specifically for the Leeville royalty on the Carlin trend, which is a nice paying royalty, which we'll continue to pay, this, this settlement did not affect the, um, uh, the, the specific royalty at Leeville. Uh, so that royalty will continue to pay. This lawsuit was around the area of interest and uh, both parties had a different interpretation as to how that area of interest should be interpreted. And uh, we fought the fight for many years. It went to the Supreme Court of Nevada on different summary judgments. And we prevailed in those summary judgments. 
and ultimately we settled. We settled for less money than we felt that we should have been paid. And I think Barrick paid more than they felt they should have to pay. And that's probably the right space for a settlement to occur uh, after lawyer expenses. And, and, and this whole thing was set into motion prior to us owning Bullion Monarch. All we did was continue that forward to the betterment of our shareholders. And I'm delighted that it goes in the win box. Um, after all of our expenses, we netted out 18 million USD. Uh, very pleased to have it behind us. We're not in the business of suing counterparties. We're in the business of creating wealth with our counterparties. And that's one of the reasons why we you know, didn't bloviate about it. Um, happy to have it done. Uh, we have a lot of respect for Barrick. They were an early shareholder in EMX. We think they do great work and I hope we can do work with them in the future. Yeah. Well, let's continue this conversation regarding unpaid royalties because there's another, um, you know, I, I don't know how you call it, the relationship with Zizian with the project in Serbia. Uh, you, you had put out a notice that uh, you had entered into arbitration for negotiations regarding that royalty. Um, and then back in late January, you suspended that filing. Uh, this is a big one because, you know, for the last few years, Dave, uh, you haven't been bashful about just really how magnific magnificent the um, yeah. how, how important that royalty can be. But you're getting some pushback here from Zizian. Um, and I know you can't necessarily go into full detail where you're at in those negotiations or, or non-arbitration or however you're putting it. But, you know, how is somebody looking at EMX as an investment? look to value value the company when something like this is happening? So first of all, let me explain that we purchased this royalty for 200,000 Canadian dollars from Euromax um, before the, the breadth of this discovery, which is now the largest copper and gold discovery made in the history of the Europe and, and is one of the largest ongoing copper and gold development stories in the world. And, and so anyone that says a very significant asset, there's, they're absolutely spot on. And I've said that many times. And even if we're at the bottom end of the spectrum of where Xinjiang interprets the uh, royalty percentage, it would still be significant to EMX. And this royalty agreement was written, um, once again, it's similar to the Barrett case by you know, a couple of companies ago, right. and, and, it, and it was not written by us, and we bought it for a de minimis amount of money, and it's turned into a substantial asset. It doesn't surprise me that the counterparty interprets the language within that document that allows for dilution um, if, if and as Freeport uh, moved forward, went back when they were the partner. Um, they, they interpret that differently than we do. Doesn't surprise me. And we've got excellent attorneys on this case. We did say that we would go to arbitration. Xinjing reached out to us and said, don't you think we should settle this amicably? We said, of course we should. We're in that process now. I can't say anything more, uh, but uh, I will say that they've been a professional and communicative group to work with. What jurisdiction are those negotiations happening in? So, so, so if it goes to arbitration, okay. it is binding arbitration. It's not going to arbitration. I believe we'll solve it amicably. Um, but if it goes to arbitration, as defined in the royalty agreement, which is filed on CDAR for you and, and your followers to go and see them for themselves, and it's binding arbitration in British Columbia, I will point out that Canada, British Columbia, the United States, Serbia, and China are all signatories to the New York Arbitration Convention, which very specifically states that when binding arbitration is settled in any of the common nations and states 
within uh, the that have signed off on the convention, then it's applicable to all the other states. And that's one of the beauties of binding arbitration. So, uh, um, but I, I don't think we're going to have to go to arbitration. Um, I believe we'll find an amicable solution with uh, uh, Xinjiang. And like I said, they're, they're communicative and professional. Okay. Well, I think the $100 million question here, Dave, is similar to the Barrick settlement, which uh, you just mentioned you maybe took less than what you thought you deserved and Barrick paid more than what they thought they should. Is that something that could also happen with this discussion with Zizian? Well, that's how most negotiations go. I can't say anything more than that. We cannot selectively disclose anything. Uh, I do have a positive outlook. Okay, very good. Always politically correct. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, let, let's let's also talk about one of the other big kind of headwinds that uh, w- was kind of brought out through the, f- uh, the the filing of the financials was uh, the rawhide gold mine in Nevada. Um, you know, this was something I remember. Seeing a picture of you holding the Dore bar there uh, on site, I think it was just like last year. Uh, Unfortunately, that royalty hasn't come out and it hasn't come to pass because uh, can you give us the status of Rawhide? Are they mining? I I understand there is is ore on the leach pad, so it is leaching, but there's no mining. So... um First of all, don't mind me just correcting you real quick. Sure. You, you called it a royalty. It's actually was an equity interest or is an equity yeah. interest. Thank um, you for in, correcting in, me. In the, in the project, not a royalty. And there's an important, I want to make that point specifically because I talked about how, you know, we've tried to follow the model set forth by Pierre Lasson. And I remember Pierre Lasson saying when I was a young geologist and he was talking about the new company that he was starting that was focused on royalties in the, in the mining space. And he said the quote, we don't buy yellow trucks. And of course, there's a lot embedded in that quote. And basically what he's saying is all the risks that are taken on by the operator are not taken on by the royalty holder. And we prefer, this is Pierre Lasson speaking, to have that, that, that uh, less risk and greater optionality with respect to the upside. And so um, I, I learned that early in my career. That's why we we're in a royalty business. And ironically, you know, we decided to cross over that line and invest in a company that was buying yellow trucks. <laughs> and, um, you know, so there's a lot of risks on that side of the business. And, and in this case, um, as can happen, uh, things didn't go well. And so, you know, we have written off that investment. I'll point out that, you know, we've made over a dozen strategic investments in EMX's history. The net result, including the potential loss, it's a paper loss at this point in time, not an actualized loss. But even if you include that in into the calculation, we've netted out over 50 million U.S. dollars in profits from our strategic investing. Several, a few along the way have not worked. Many have. Um, we definitely take risks. We understand that uh, that's how we make money in this business. Our track record speaks for itself. Uh, but we did, you know, it looks like we're probably going to lose some money on this one. It's not totally over yet. I believe it's very conservative that we've written off the entire investment because I, I do believe it's quite likely that we'll be able to recapture perhaps half of it, um, mm. maybe maybe even more. Uh, so, you know, the, the, we don't know the end of the story yet, but it did not turn out the way that we thought it would be as a cash cow because of the multitude of complications involved in mining, moving ore, stacking it, leaching it, recovering the gold. And uh, there were some COVID issues, unfortunately. we. We had uh, some employees get sick. One employee passed away, actually. Um, and 
So, you, you know, that, that's, that's unfortunate, um, but it is what it is. And, um, you know, it helped me galvanize the lesson I learned from Pierre early in my career. Don't buy yellow trucks, own royalties. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess looking back on this and you just kind of mentioned a helpful reminder of a lesson when you know, what, what is to take away is from you as a CEO of EMX royalty, what is, you know, what was the, the major lesson learned from, from Rawhide that, uh, you know, maybe what did you do? What would you do differently now other than not jump in on the deal? What would you do differently now if something, the same type of project you were approached with something similar? So that's a great question. We've asked that question internally ourselves, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. We pride ourselves on our technical due diligence. On the due diligence team, we're some of the best engineers I know and, and former long-term engineers at vice president levels at Newmont Mining Corporation. And uh, we just simply got it wrong. The, uh, probably one of the things to point out to all of us in the mining industry is that risks are multiplicative. So if there's a 95% chance that everything will go right with respect to the mining and a 95% chance that everything will go right with respect to the crushing and a 95% chance everything will go right on the environmental side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are multiplied by each other. And the next thing you know, your sub 50% chance of success. And um, that's, that's always something that you need to keep in mind. Not that we didn't understand that in advance, uh, but um, you know, we, we thought we were, we were making a calculated bet where the odds were with us. And in this particular case, that's not the way the dice rolled. So how do you approach, how do you, how do you approach projects as, as uh, internal processes with EMX change when looking at um, mining projects to take a strategic investment in, you know, what, you know, what's changed internally, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. So our sweet spot is at the early stage of prospecting and royalty generation. So of course, we're focusing on that and and we plan to continue doing that. Our strategic investing, which has paid off nicely over the years, more on the project development side where we're taking equity, corporate equity in these companies, such as the investment in Malmish in Russia is a good example. There's other examples as well. There was a uranium company earlier in our history which netted out a substantial amount of money relative to our market cap at that point in time. And so, you know, we, we, we think making these strategic investments is very important. Uh, We, we believe that we, um, we know our track record having done that is great. And I'm particularly excited about the one we're doing right now in premium nickel resources, which is, which is doing an RTO with North American nickel. I think we're going to make back all the money that we that we lost at Rawhide and more with that investment. We're very, very pleased. And that's more on the development side than the, than the production side, which is probably a better area for us to focus with respect to um, uh, strategic investing. Is that EMX's first move into Africa? It is not the first time that we've looked at things very closely, Okay, uh, but, but it's the first time that we've written a check. Okay. Interesting. Um, I was just curious. There's a lot of eyes on that nickel project in Botswana. A lot of people are waiting. For good reason. I'm <laughs> telling you, um, you know, EMX is full up uh, with respect to our investment there. That's why we made the press release. We weren't talking about it for a long time as we accumulated as much stock as we could at cheap prices. And um, uh, we think that that this nickel sulfide system in Botswana, and Botswana is a great place to work. Yeah. Fabulous place to work. Yeah. Um, and our advisor, uh, Steve Enders, is, is involved intimately in another company that has a copper mine um, in Botswana. So we have a lot of Botswana 
experience share within the group. And we believe that this system will be in the top five nickel sulfide systems on the planet. Okay. <laughs> that's Well, the, we need more nickel. And I also wanted to go back uh, with your deal with Malmish in Russia. I mean, thank goodness that that deal was done a couple of years ago, because I think the likelihood of something like that happening in a time like this, probably it wouldn't have happened. Would so, not have happened. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, people say, well, lucky you sold out when you did. Well, it's not all luck. Um, because the Crimea situation had blown up prior to us making that sale. Mm -hmm. And of course, when the Crimea situation was happening, that was great cause of concern for us and accelerated our desire to liquidate that asset, which we did and, and got all the money in the bank back in October of 2018. And we've not gone back to Russia subsequently. Okay. Uh, I, I do want to get your general sense here in the royalty space here, Dave, because I remember a few years ago at the Beaver Creek Precious Metals Summit, Doug Silver uh, with Orion Mind Finance gave a presentation and somebody asked him if, you know, if there was too many royalty companies on the market. And this was three years ago. And he said, no, there's probably enough space for more. Uh, you know, I was actually having this conversation this morning with a, a few colleagues at breakfast and we were talking about this and he said, well, what a difference three years ago makes, because now it seems like we're saturated with new royalty companies in the market. Well, you know, talk to us about the royalty space. Not only what's your sense, are we getting oversaturated with royalty companies and what does this mean for acquiring new royalties? Is it getting overly competitive? Yeah, so more than happy to comment on that. I'm a believer in the free market, and it doesn't really matter what what uh, um, Doug Silver. Not, I mean, I love to hear his opinion. I have a lot of respect for Doug, uh, but it doesn't matter what he thinks or what I think. Uh, the if folks want to start royalty companies, they will, and it's a free market, and the capital that is available for these companies to start, you know, it's up to their decision making process. You decide whether or not they want to fund a new co or not, and and we all survive within that free market space. I welcome competition. That's, you know, that's part of how our, our uh, capitalistic system works great. So, you know, it, it is what it is. And, and, and here's the short answer to the competitiveness for purchasing royalties. Um, royalties are phenomenal financial instruments with immense embedded optionality. And there's many fabulous examples of royalties that were purchased for a very small amount of money that have paid a, you know, life-changing amounts of money or company building amounts of money over time. And it's because of that embedded optionality. So there's a reason why royalties trade at a premium. And um, you know, I, I think it's likely that that will remain in place uh, for solid reason. Uh, and you know, I, I'm confident that we can negotiate uh, or navigate, I should say, these competitive waters to the advantage of our shareholders. We've been doing it for a long time. How does the rest of the year look? I mean, we keep talking about, uh, you know, um, company changing deals. And we talk, I feel like you and I have had this conversation for more than a year now. Uh, there's a lot of eyes. I remember you saying, you know, 2022 is going to be the year that really changes the face of EMX. Yep. Do you still hold true with that? And, you know, what's come down the pipeline that makes you hold firm that that will be the case? Yeah, absolutely. So that we're transitioning from a junior company that's been building a royalty portfolio through royalty acquisition and royalty generation for nearly two decades to a mid-tier company that's going to have strong cash flow. And that transformation is occurring over the course of the next year or two. 
And it's, and it's specifically because of the cash coming in from Casarones, which has now been augmented. We love that asset. The cash that is coming in from Leeville, which recently has been climbing after having a five-year decline. It's actually back on the upswing now. We expected that because we saw the discovery holes being announced within the footprint of the royalty. So we knew it was only a matter of time before those royalty payments started to kick back up. We've seen that. That's great. And then Balia, this is a substantial asset. It's been very slow to bring into production, as is commonly the case with underground mines. And uh, but but it is coming into production it is a substantial asset. Lead, zinc, silver, zinc prices are fantastic. Lead prices are very good, and um, um, that will become a substantial cash flow. It's likely to augment uh, on a continual basis over the course of the forthcoming five years, actually, before it really peaks out relative to the current mine plan. And so that's a key asset that is forthcoming months away from from our first big royalty checks on that one. Then settling the TMUC issue, getting the royalties that they already owe us from the back production. That mine is in production; it's producing nicely. Um, and whatever number we end up settling on, it's going to be meaningful amount of cash flow to EMX. It'll be good to get that one completed and that money coming in the bank. And then very, very, very importantly, is the Getic Tepe royalty that was part of the portfolio that we bought from SSR and made SSR one of our larger shareholders in the, in the course of that transaction. And that is a 10% NSR on the upper oxide gold and, gold and uh, silver and rich zone uh, that is in production now. Uh, but there's an important clause within that royalty that says they do not pay royalties on the first 10,000 ounces. So the 10% kicks in after 10,000 ounces. My understanding is they're somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 ounces right now. They're just a couple of months away. And then we'll start to get that royalty check. And, and that's going to be significant amount of cash flow to us for approximate five-year mine life of the upper oxide zone. Then it switches to a 2% royalty in perpetuity on the polymetallic sulfide zone at depth. Yeah. So those are a number of catalysts that are fortuitously, you know, happening mm -hmm. within a compressed period of time frame. It's all part of us growing up and becoming a mid-tier company with strong cash flows. Uh, I, my last question for you, and this is mainly just an observation from myself, Dave, but, you know, I think one of the things I've noticed in the last year is I've spent enough time with you. I've spent enough time with Eric Jensen. Uh, love you guys to death. It's fun to watch you work and do deals. But I have to admit that I what I have noticed is that Staff and people you bring into EMX are starting to look younger and younger. You're bringing in some new faces, <laughs> you know, and I think this is obviously it's very important. Uh, you know, can you know, you know, why bring in a new younger generation of geologists and exploration type of mind people and what are they offering you? You know, um, what we've built over the course of the last two decades is, uh, uh, has been accomplished because of the phenomenal team that we've built over time. And I always focused on uh, attracting the very best contributors first and foremost, and then built the business around their intellect. And people say, well, you know, why would you go to Haiti? What did you like about the geology? No, we went there because we, you know, we engaged the right guy that took us to Haiti about just to bring up one of the more crazy places that we've gone. And um, so it's always been a people first approach philosophically from the very beginning. And so we don't necessarily have any position open that, that we need to fill. Uh, we just, as we work around the world, look for people that we think have juice and are exceptionally intelligent and get our business model, and then we engage them. And we're delighted to bring on young folks. Uh, I, I, I think um, 
I think that's a good move on our part. Yeah, I do too. All right, Dave, thanks so much for your time. It's good to connect. And uh, thanks for going through a lot of questions, a lot of things happening with EMX in the last four or five months. But uh, the next four or five months do look to be quite transformational for the company. Uh, we'll be paying close attention. We'll maybe talk again later in the year. Always, always a pleasure, Trevor. Thank you. That's a wrap this week. We'll be back Monday morning with the news briefing. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.